Amen. As those baskets are being passed, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. If you're, if you're fairly new um, here to Four Oaks, you need to know that we are, it's our practice to preach through books of the Bible, and we are in the middle of our series on Acts. We have been now for six months, and we'll continue uh, cranking through here through the end of the spring. And the, and the title of this, of this series is Unconquered, From One Life to All Nations. And you know, what's interesting about the book of Acts is that even those people in our culture who are skeptics, historians that really want nothing to do with Jesus Christ or affirm anything at all about his life or ministry or even atheists, even the most skeptical historian, when, when they come to the book of Acts, it's, they, they just don't know what to do with it. And, and oftentimes we don't know what to do with it because let's just think about what we're witnessing and what we've witnessed this last six months. Here, we, we have this group of people, a ragtag, lowly group of 120 um, with no cultural influence. They have the lowliest of saviors, a crucified Messiah as their hero. Um, there's no technology. There's no resources. There's no money. They don't have any standing. And, 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 and somehow, they've literally changed the face of the world. I mean, literally, in the, in the course of 20 years here into this study, um, the, 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 the landscape is changing. The seeds are being planted where um, eventually they will blossom into to Christianity being the world's most dominant religion. How, how did this happen? Historians are baffled by it. A lot of times when we read it, we're baffled by it. And, there, and there's something to remember, uh, Four Oaks, as we, as we continue our study here, is that we cannot discount the supernatural. And that may seem like a no-brainer coming from a pastor, but so often it's easy to do. We look at things from a real human perspective. What are the, what's the formula? What are the ABCs? What's the one, two, three that will get us from here to there? And, and Acts reminds us, and, and this is really important for your personal life too, Acts reminds us that apart from the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit, you and I have nothing. That, that we can invest ourselves in our jobs, we can invest ourselves in our families, in, in, our, in our careers, I mean, even in our networks, our friendships, even in really good things, but unless God's Spirit is at the center of it, it will fade. It will not last. And we can see this culturally, can we not? Um, things that were, that were part of the DNA of the founding of our country in terms of the recognition of a sovereign God, a sovereign Christ. And when that is stripped away, when God, when it is Ichabod, okay, meaning God's spirit is departed, a culture and a country reaps the consequences. And we have to understand whatever we endeavor, unless God's spirit is in it, it will fade. It will not last. And so, so as we approach the, the book of Acts, we have, to, we have to understand that. At the same time, we want to be looking at, as we will in this passage today, what is it that the Holy Spirit particularly uses in changing lives? Um, because that's what the story of Acts is from start to finish. It is the chronicle of multitudes of people having their lives 
changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, we have to say, what is it that God's Spirit particularly uses to do that? And, and you've heard me use this term before. I'm going I'm to use it again. It's helpful, I think, to think about the, the air war and the ground war of Acts, okay? And so, so all the World War II history buffs amongst us, okay? And so I was talking to somebody this week. We were mutual World War II history buffs. I include myself in that, okay? I'm buff, and I like World War II. Anyway, so we were, we were talking about it, and, and, and a, a term for any of you World War II people that you should be familiar with is the term blitzkrieg, right? It was, it's German. It's a Nazi military term. It just means lightning war. And so when the Nazis would roll into a place... They would do two things simultaneously. They would hit you hard on the ground. Jeeps and tanks and machine guns and infantry, while at the same time coming at you from um, up high with airplanes and artillery. And it was like, it was, it was lightning and it was devastating. And we, in, a, in fact, a lot of you as parents who have teenagers probably feel like you're in the middle of spiritual blitzkrieg, right? Okay, and so we hope it turns out for you better than it did for the Nazis. But no, nonetheless, okay, in the book of Acts, we have this amazing air war, which is Paul like going around planting churches. He is preaching, he is teaching, he's establishing elders, and then he rolls on into the next town, right? Because what was Paul's burden? To preach the gospel where it has not been heard before. And so, he, so this is his practice. Well, at the same time, there was this ground war going on. Because even though Paul would establish these beachheads in these cities, the question still remained, how would the gospel be pushed down into the very fabric of people's lives? How does that happen? Um, what is the mechanism? And, that, and that's, that's a great question all of us should have. We all have a burden for that. We have a burden for that with our families. We have a burden for that with our friends and our own souls and our extended networks. And what we're going to find in Acts 16 this morning is that the ground war of Acts is through what we call tribes, right? Sounds all indigenous and like Native American, you know, spears, and, and that's not what we're talking about, okay? Tribes means people. Tribes are networks. Tribes are relationship. We are all a part of multiple tribes this morning, right? There's, the, there's your family tribe, or your community tribe, or your work tribe, or your college football team, that's a part of your tribe. I guess Four Oaks, we're, we're, we are a tribe. Tribes are our networks of relationships. We're all a part of them. So you go over to the Premier Workout and Fitness Center. I've been over there a couple times in my life. Anyway, when, when, when you go, right, okay, I see some laughter. You know, there's the tribe, there's a tribe of these elderly statesmen who hang out in the hot tub. You, ever, you notice these guys? Ladies, steer clear. You, you want no part of this. And everything about that tribe says, get away, okay, get away. Like you would want to go into the hot tub with, you know, never mind, okay, so you, you get the whole... You get the whole idea. All of us are a part of them. And what we're going to find in Acts 16 is that relationships are the means by which the gospel saturates and is pushed down into the very fabric of people's lives. And we're going to hone in on, on three small sections here in these couple of chapters under the rubric or idea of what we are calling the tribal gospel. Okay, so let's give some context. Last week we left off, or two weeks ago, or uh, yeah, last week, 
when, when they, Paul and his companions had come to Troas, and they had picked up Luke in the process. And this is Paul's second missionary journey. Remember, Paul had wanted to go to Asia. Um, that, was his, that was his vision. But at the time, God said no. So remember that whole message last week, when God says no. Well, we're about to find out what God was saying yes to. And it was a fruitful ministry beyond anything Paul could have ever imagined. And, and if, you walk, if you look on a map, what's going to happen is Paul goes into Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. He plants the church in Philippi. He plants the church in Thessalonica. He goes into Berea, then to Athens, and plants the church in Corinth. That's a pretty fruitful missionary endeavor, wouldn't you say? We are going to spend next week looking at what happens in Athens because it's so impactful to this whole journey. But today, we want to take out a few snippets from what happens in Philippi and Corinth as we look at this idea of of how is the gospel, how does that really work? How does it really transform people's lives? That's not an academic question for us, right? There's people we're praying for. There's our one life folks that we're investing in. There's our marriages. Lord, how does this gospel thing permeate down to the roots, to the soil of our hearts, souls, and lives? And we're going to learn something about this from Acts. So we're going to start in Acts 16, verses 14 through 15, and then drop down, and I'll, and I'll call out. We're just going to read three, three snapshots of the tribal gospel at work. Acts 16, 14 through 15. Now, one who heard us, and we read this last week, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We talked about that last week, okay? But listen to this. And after she was baptized and, okay, here's the idea of tribe, her household as well, She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us, okay? Drop down to verse 29, and this is the episode with the jailer. And we're going to again see this sort of tribal impulse at work. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs... What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household, tribe. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he had rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And then down to Acts 18, verses 7 through 8. They're in, they're in Corinth now. And it says, And he, meaning Paul, left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, okay, here we go again, together with his entire household. 
And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So two points to this sermon, okay? Just, just, just two, okay? The tribal gospel as anchor, how it's, the, it's how we're to orient our lives, and then the tribal gospel in action. Tribal gospel as our anchor, and then the tribal gospel in action. So let's, let's, let's talk about the tribal gospel as anchor. Guys, in, all, in three of these texts, okay, for, for the astute theologian among you, you know that there has been a mountain of theological blood spilled okay, over these passages because they're the passages that people want to talk about what? Baptism, right? Okay. Who, who was baptized? Are these infants? Are they believers? Are, what, what does a household even mean? Who was a part of a household? And, and we are gonna, we're going to come back to this in, under our second point, and we are going to resolve once and for all what has not been resolved in 2,000 years. What do we do about believer baptism and infant baptism? Seriously, we are going to actually, I think, resolve that. And so, so we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to that. But here's the whole point. That's not why Luke's writing this. Okay, it has implications for this, but that, that, Luke's not like, hmm, you know, Christians down the road are going to really debate this whole infant believer baptism thing, and let me try to write something that's completely inscrutable. No, 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 Luke, Luke did not do that. That's not what Luke has in mind here. Luke, Luke's main point for Oaks is, is very simply this. Tribes, remember relationships, networks, friendships, okay, whatever, tribes are the most natural environments for the gospel to flourish. Tribes are the most natural environments for the gospel to flourish. Tribes are kind of like gospel incubators. Okay, what's an incubator? Well, you, you grow and nurture something in an incubator, right? Whether it's eggs or plants, hopefully nothing illegal, right? Okay, but tribes are gospel incubators. And the gospel flourishes or incubates most naturally Okay, here's the point, in relationship. You know, as parents, we, ought, we, are, we are rightly, let me say this, rightly, and as a parent I can affirm this, rightly concerned about the culture and media and its influence on our children. And we, and we, need, to be, we need to be rightfully concerned. But, but they did a youth ministry survey, and, 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 this, and this consistently comes back like this. And they asked students who, you know, what, what are the dominant influences in your life, okay? What has influenced you the most, you know? And so, so immediately we, we all hunker down as parents and, you know, the, we believe our pluralistic culture is going to, like, hunt near the big bad whoop. It's going to hunt down and, like, drag off our children. And, I mean, that, again, legitimate concern. Every single time, every single time, students indicate my parents and my family have been the most dominant influence in my life, and it's not even close. Not even close. Okay, we think about peers and friends and celebrities and media and technology, and yes, they all assert a sort of influence, but survey after survey shows this, guys. We completely, and I think this is particularly true for 21st century westernized Americans, we completely underestimate the power of household or tribal life to shape and form the gospel. We consistently underestimate it. 
as parents, we're like, if there, there's got to be something out there, right? There's got to be some camp or some school or some program or some, some something. Okay? And all those have their place and they are important. But at the end of the day, nothing beats the family for exerting tribal influence for the gospel over kids. It's not even close. And we look at the text, okay? Go back to the text, those three examples we read. What is their impulse every single time? Lydia, what's her impulse? She goes to her household. And at that time, that wasn't just children or husband, although it it most certainly probably was that. But in that time, oikos household just means this is my this is my network. Okay, these are my people who work for me. These are people who live on my property. These are people who like farm my land. These are people who are who are connected meaningfully to me financially or for their employment or by relationship or extended family. So Lydia's like, I've got some good news here. And what's my impulse? I'm gonna go tell. I'm gonna go network. I'm gonna connect with my tribe. Look at the jailer. Okay. He um, his, his, he, he's on the brink of, of death. He's about to kill himself because Paul and Silas have escaped ostensibly. He is saved, and what is his impulse? We've got to go to my household. We've got, we got to go tell. We've got to go network. This great news has to be shared. This is, this is not to be contained within myself. The same thing with Christmas in Acts 18, ruler of the synagogue, he and his entire household. And, and one of the questions for us, Four Oaks. This is a question for parents um, in your families. It's a question for us in our tribes and networks. Is your impulse and is my impulse to be tribal with the gospel? Is that our impulse? I want to say I think we really struggle with this. I really struggle with this. We live um, in the Oprah Winfrey. I was going to make up a word, but I couldn't even think what it would be winterization, okay, of culture where we are spiritual and not religious, which just means this. When people say we're spiritual and not religious, what they mean is I'm not going to identify, identify myself with any particular religious group or creed. In a minute, we're going to recite the Nicene Creed right before communion as a joint testament of our faith. Spirituality has no room for that because spirituality is private. It's individualized. It says, I want some of this, I want some of that. No thank you to this. No, no, no thank you to that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to comprise my own personalized, individualized experience. And, and, here, and here's the great danger in that, okay? Even as believers. See, spirituality is inherently individualistic, and it's made to be consumed, okay? The Christian faith is inherently communal and life-transforming and is meant to be shared. You cannot, okay, let me tell you why we are a culture that loves our spirituality but craves community. You cannot have community in a spiritualized culture because there is nothing in common to share. You have nothing in common to share, which means that as, as, as a people, and I'm going to aim this again at parents because I think it's particularly relevant what is your impulse? Do you have a, a tribal gospel impulse with your family? Because you can, because as a family, you can either say, you know what, we live together, we eat together, 
We're going to read the Word together. We're going to pray together. We're going to sing together. We're going to open God's Word together. We're going to go worship in the same place. We're not going to have disjointed lives. We're going to learn the same things, engage in the same truths, or you can be completely siloed where everyone does their own thing. You know, remember Chuck Colson, the late, uh, late great Chuck Colson with the Lord now, called this Mech Church. And, and, and this was a description of the fact that often evangelical families would be doing six different spiritual things. They would worship in one place and serve in another, and their kid was in this youth group, and they went to this Bible study, and none of it coalesced. It was all very random. And let me tell you the problem, folks, when we approach our Christian faith in a siloed versus a tribal sort of framework. The, and and here's, a, here's something, if you're, if you're writing stuff down, this is something to write. The home field advantage of the gospel is community and relationships. That's our home field advantage. That's where faith flourishes. But when we strip faith from community, we lose that advantage, which, again, would be just like a college football team that has an 85,000-seat stadium saying, you know what, we this season are deciding to play before an empty stadium. Okay? We're selling zero tickets and because, you know, it's easier to play that way. Now, now, now use the parallel. Okay? Remember, there's a lot of Christians who are like, it's, it's just easier for me to do my faith by myself. I can be with God alone in nature, and I, these community of people are dragging me down, and I've got, I'm radical, and I've got a vision for this, that, and the other. It's just easier to run unencumbered without all these sinners around me, right? So think about this. So you're a football team. It's just easier to play by ourselves. It's easier. There's no distractions, and there's no... But, 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 but we, we all recognize the foolishness of that, right? A football team would be giving up its greatest advantage, which is its home field. Many Christians, Four Oaks, are living in exactly the same place. What is your impulse with the gospel and your tribe and your relationships. You know, this has a lot of, I think, implications for our one life. And if you're, if you're fairly new to here to Four Oaks, we simply endeavored at the beginning of this study to say, you know what, a lot of times this talk about winning the whole world and changing the whole world, that sounds wonderful, but it's totally nebulous and it has no teeth. So let's just all think about who is the one or two people in our lives that we want to pray for, share the gospel with, and invest ourselves relationally and spiritually with. Who, who is that one person for us? And we have called this one life. And so in your booklets, you can see um, how we have, um, in our Acts booklets, how every week there's an application related to our one life, what we're doing, how we're engaging, how we're praying, what we're, what we're saying to them. You know, we're, we're in February now, okay? This year has gone by just like that. We've got about three months left in this series, and it's time to, for us to put up or shut up with our one life for some of us, right? It's time for me to put up or shut up. But what's the, what is one thing, okay, here's a question. What is one thing, what is an incredibly important thing that some of us could do in relationship to our one life besides sharing the gospel with them? And this is probably one thing most of us may not be doing, and it's simply this, exposing them to your tribe. Exposing them to your tribe. Bringing them home to eat 
dinner with, inviting them to your fellowship group. Oh, but they won't understand. And what if the jailer had said that? What if the jailer had said, you know, Paul, you know, Paul and Silas, my, my family needs time to get acclimated to this new reality in my life, okay? I, they're not going to understand all this Christian jargon and, and lingo and no, 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 no. Folks, we totally underestimate the power of the gospel in relationships when we divorce these things from our life. One of the best things you can do with your one life person is to bring them here on Sunday morning and then they have no idea what's going on. <laughs> that is a good thing. That is a good thing. You talk and you explain and you engage and you expose them to relationship. You take them to lunch after the services, the services order. The roots have to go deep. Okay, with our one life, or here is what can happen. Okay, so um, a lot of us, most of us are familiar, 1989, the Berlin Wall comes down. And it opens up this unprecedented era of openness with these Eastern European bloc countries under Soviet Union domination. And they have not had unfettered access to the gospel in decades. And so the walls come down and countries are open and the missionaries flood in and the parachurch ministries come in and it's, it's predicted this is going to be the, the beginning of a, of a new dawn in Eastern Europe where the gospel is going to make this incredible impact. But we are now 30 years later, 25 years later, and it hasn't quite worked out that way. And there's a reason for that. Because as we were going and sharing the gospel, we were not connecting people meaningfully to their tribe. There was no churches being planted. There were no communities being established in mass. And so people are converted and they have no tribe and they have no relationship and the gospel's impact is blunted. I think it's a metaphor for many of us in our spiritual lives. It's a metaphor for us because we are not tapped in to the tribal gospel. Maybe you're the person on the other end and you are running solo, you are running alone, Four Oaks, you're giving up your greatest home-filled advantage. God has designed you and me for gospel impact in and through relationship. In Acts 16, 17, 18, these three, these three instances tell us how, and they tell, show us why. Okay, tribal gospel in action. Second point. You know, the Philippian jailer, let's look at the, this episode with the Philippian jailer because we have a lot to learn from this. We're going to talk about faith and baptism and all sorts of, of, of cool things here. Hopefully they're cool. But the Philippian jailer asked the most important question in all of Scripture. And it's the most important question that any one of us can ask. And by the way, people who are totally skeptics, atheists, don't acknowledge God, they're all asking the same question, albeit in a different way. They may ask it, or the, the jailer asks it this way. What does he say? He says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's his question. And he's saying that destitute. His prisoners have escaped, and he's, he's, he's about to kill himself. And he recognizes there is some, he cannot make sense of his world. He cannot ex- make sense of this, of this gospel transaction that's happening with Paul and Silas. And he's like, I'm at the bottom, sirs, what must I do to be saved? By the way, that is what everybody in their culture is asking. Now, they ask it in different ways. What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? Why isn't my life working? Okay, what's, why am I so empty? 
why, don't, why doesn't this life make me happy? It comes out in all sorts of forms. But it's the same question as. And it really points us to this idea, guys. As you're bringing people into your tribes, and, and, and that's foundational, there's something else that needs to happen. There's something else that needs to happen. There is still yet a transaction to occur. Because being a Christian is not a cultural, fundamentally identity. Okay? It's like, how can you have people who identify as Jewish but be atheists? How, how does that happen? Okay? Because, it's because their faith is no longer a spiritual identity, it's a cultural one, right? That's why you can have Roman Catholics who don't affirm anything their church teaches, but it's because it's fundamentally now a cultural identification. And I don't want to assume that just because we're a conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing church that we don't wrestle with this too. Because just in the same way that going to a college football game does not make you a college football player, and for some of you, it doesn't even make you a fan, okay? But that's a whole different story. In the same way, being here, being in a Christian home, being raised in a church, being a part of a campus ministry does not fundamentally make you a Christian, and the Philippian jailer totally understands this. Okay? If this was simply about, I've made this transition in my life, and now I want my family to love me and support me and to come alongside of me and to be a part of this new identity thing we have going, then he could have done that, but that's not what happens. What does he do? He brings Paul and Silas to his house. And so here's what happens in that transaction. There's three things from the text, I want us to recognize about the transaction that needs to happen to move people from tribe to life-changing relationship in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 31. So he's asked the question, what do I got to do? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. He doesn't mean by that, by the way, that if the jailer believes that it's, that it's, that it counts for everybody else in the house. Okay? That's, that's, that's not what he means. Okay? And this is a powerful, we'll get to this in a second, argument for this idea that, that, that these are believers being baptized. Because Paul is saying, if you believe and your household believes, they will be saved. You see what I'm saying? Okay? That's an important distinction. And so, you know, in, in, in our culture, belief, I think, oftentimes means something radically different than what it means biblically. And parents, you have to wrestle with this, particularly if your child has been well-versed and, um, in the Bible verses, has been educated at a Christian school, um, knows all the gospel answers, okay? That, and, and we'll even tell you they believe them, okay? That's important, but it's not everything that's necessary because if it was then James would not have told us in James chapter 2, you know what, the, the, the demons believe all those things, and they shudder. Okay? That's demonic faith. Okay? Mere intellectual assent. Because I can believe that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president, that he signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, that, that knowledge or that assent does not save me. It, there's, there's nothing 
um, that's been activated in terms of life change within me. Belief, biblically, and this is important, parents listen to this, means to entrust yourself to something. It means to submit yourself and to live under a set of convictions to walk in them. See, a lot of people, particularly us culturally, we love to remain detached and distant and don't acknowledge the claims of Christ on our life and say, that's saving faith. I have my fire insurance. I know that I'm going to heaven. And biblically, we know that is not true. What's interesting about this passage is that we have the jailer, and you can flip back to verse 24, okay? Verse 24 says that the jailer had received this order to place Paul and Silas in prison. It says he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks, okay? You get that? Then all of a sudden, within a few verses, it goes down and it says, verse 33 It says, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Guys, this is a man whose life and heart have been transformed by the saving grace and work of the gospel. When the jailer washed them, Four Oaks, and he took care of them, that's not what saved them. didn't save him. It was the evidence of the saving. And we can say, along with Scripture, unless there is a changed heart that reflects itself in a lifestyle of repentance, someone will not be saved. You know, we're really freaked out by verses like 1 Corinthians 6, right? Where it says, listen, neither homosexuals or idolaters or gossips or thieves or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We freak out when we read verses that says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. What, what are the Scriptures telling us there? Your repentance doesn't save you, but your repentance is evidence of the fact that you are being saved. Folks, that is biblical faith, and it's what we see in the life of this jailer. Second thing we see in this passage, verse 32, it says that Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to them. You know, again, very common in a spiritual culture. I don't need religion. I don't need your creeds. I don't need your Bible teaching. I've got Jesus. Okay? Jesus is enough for me. The problem with that is that then we have to ask, well, tell me about this Jesus that you worship. Who who is this? What did he say? You know, what is every postmodern's favorite verse that Jesus uttered? What is their favorite verse? Okay? Judge not, right? Lest you be, of course it is, okay? Parents, you get that all the time. Judge not, okay? It doesn't mean don't judge. It just means, well, you know, the way you judge, it'll be kind of measured back to you. You'll be judged in the same way. So be careful how you judge, right? That's all that Jesus is saying. But, you know, I'm not positive, but I think Jesus says a lot of other things in the Gospels about that really impact us, right? It says things like deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That means submitting yourself to him. That means walking in the path that he has prescribed. And so when we read this little section, he spoke the word of the Lord to them. This was no drive-by evangelism. This was no sign a card and walk the aisle, and as, as, as relevant as those things can be. And some of you have been saved by them. But something fundamentally more is at stake. Who is Jesus 
Christ? What are the claims he makes on our life? Because a fuzzy Christianity and a fuzzy knowledge of Christ does us no good. And so as you're engaging with your one life, as you are thinking about this tribal gospel thing, you got to understand what do we mean by believe? What do we mean by repent? What do we mean by trusting in Jesus? Third thing we see in this text is baptism. Because three times in this passage, baptism is mentioned. You cannot go anywhere in Acts and hear about a conversion without hearing about baptism. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that I, I kind of detect, I mean, I'm not speaking so much here of Four Oaks, but just culturally, there's sort of a neglect and lack of urgency and a growing complacency, I believe, when it comes to baptism. Okay? And you may hear people say, well, you know, it's not that important. It's not necessary for salvation. It's just kind of, you know, I was baptized as an infant and all blah, blah. And we'll, we'll talk about that and talk about why you need to repent from that in a second, okay? But, but here, somebody just caught that. But here's why this is important, okay? I was wondering if Matt Rousseau was going to be here today, and he is, and I am so glad. I did not ask his permission to share this, but what I'm going to narrate is a very public event. But Matt and Ashley got married back there five, five years ago? Yeah, five, five years ago. And we were standing right on this stage, were we not, Matt and Ashley? And, and I said, may I have the rings, please, Okay? And what preceded was a long, pregnant silence, right? Okay? Because the rings weren't there. Um, whoever was responsible, I know his name, but I will not utter it publicly, was responsible for bringing the rings, and said person had forgotten. And so we started going through the ceremony, and I made a big thing about how, well, you know, a, 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 you don't have to have, I mean, a ring does not make you married, right? Okay? Um, and if you have a ring, that doesn't make you married. And, and if you don't have one, that doesn't mean that you, that you can't be married. Okay? So I went through this whole thing, and it was actually a great illustration. I applied it to baptism, and then, of course, the ring showed up right in the middle of the ceremony. Okay? Now, what would have happened at that point if Matt had said, you know what? I, I see the ring there, and I'm going to get married, and I'm going to propose. I'm going to do my vows to Ashley, but Ashley, I don't want to wear this ring. Don't, uh, it's not necessary. I, I don't need it to be married. What, what, what might Ashley rightly say, okay, other than not I do, but I don't, okay, at that point, right? What does it say, ladies? Your husband wants to be married, but doesn't want to wear his ring. What does it say, right? Creates doubt. What's his purpose? What, what are his intentions? Does he not understand the claims that marriage makes upon his life? Guys, baptism is important for exactly the same reasons. Okay? It doesn't make you a Christian. don't have to have it to be a Christian. But if you refuse it, what does it say? See, in the New Testament, this wasn't just some little private baptismal service. Well, there's a little sprinkling of the water and the melodious tune in the background. This was, this was serious business. Because when this family came together and they professed faith in Christ together, they were saying, we forever are now marked as followers of Jesus Christ. And we are being washed in this water as a symbol of the cleansing of the blood of Christ over our hearts. It is a proclamation. It is, it is public. This jailer was bringing everybody he knew to say, listen, this has happened to me. I want it to happen to you. You place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I, I think about my wife's testimony, her parents going off to the Young Life camp, Windy Gap, 
Okay, adult weekend, transformed, saved by the gospel. Come home, what is the impulse? We tell our kids, this is a big deal. We want to profess faith in Christ. We are baptized together. Folks, make no mistake, there's no such thing in the New Testament as a baptism-less conversion experience. There is no such thing. And this is important. This is not a mere gospel add-on, okay? This is part and parcel of what we see over and over in the book of Acts. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Trust and be baptized because it's a public proclamation of who we are in Christ. It's telling our tribe and all of our other tribes there's a new gospel reality. I have a new Lord today. So what does this mean for us at Four Oaks? So I'm going to kind of just give you a few quick hitters and we're going to close. So what does this mean for Four Oaks? You need to know at Four Oaks, we believe in baptizing believers only, which means we don't baptize infants or small children. For all the reasons that we've been talking about here, the way we think the New Testament describes baptism, that it's a circumcised heart, it's a clean conscience, it's a cleansing, um, it's, it's involved faith, okay? We believe by definition that excludes infants. Number two, Every time in the New Testament where faith and repentance are, every, I'm sorry, every time baptism is mentioned in the New Testament, faith and repentance are always part and parcel of those baptisms. Every single time. And, and now, now some, and I love to call them infant baptizers. Like that, that, that sounds so like evil or something. They're not, okay? Guys, I grew up in the Presbyterian Church. I, I, I understand the arguments. I, I am sympathetic to the idea of how God works in tribes, through tribes. I just simply believe the way that God marked off his people in the Old Testament is fundamentally different than the way he marks it off now. Okay? It's for people who've had their hearts regenerated and changed by the gospel. And so when we see here these households being baptized, some will point to them and say, we see that, that all the members of the household are being baptized. It was babies and infants. And what the danger in saying that is that it's an argument for silence. It's an argument from silence. It doesn't, it doesn't specify that. It's always dangerous to make an argument from silence. But I believe that the episode with the jailer gives us a clear glimpse of what happens in these times. It says very clearly, the whole household came. The whole household heard the word of Christ. The whole household was baptized. Okay, Which means that we ask everyone who is a part of this church to be baptized as an adult believer, okay? Not re-baptized, okay? So if you've been baptized as a believer in another context or church, that's wonderful. But if you haven't been baptized at all, we ask you to follow the Lord in obedience to baptism. You may have a question. I was baptized as an infant. What do I, what do, I do with that, okay? And our answer to that is, is simply it depends. If you are someone who has a strong infant baptistic um, conviction, okay? We're not going to ask you to violate your conscience, okay? We, are, we do want you to know where we're coming from, and we do want you to know every time we do a baptism, we will single you out and mock you. No, we won't do that, okay? <laughs> we're going to push on you because we, you, that, that would be no good, right? If we're just like, you know, that's not what happens here. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna press. But, but if you were baptized as an infant and you have no idea why, you have no idea why. Uh, whatever, okay? Not a good reason, right? 
not a good reason not to follow the Lord in baptism. Jesus was baptized. Okay? He asked us to be baptized. Okay? Why, are we, why are we making such a big deal? Why am I making such a big deal about this? Okay, I'll, I'll simply say this. This is the tribal gospel in action. Because we love to baptize people. It is a powerful testimony. It is a powerful thing for kids and students to observe and to be a part of that. And in and, and our vision is that we want the end, as we come down the, the last quarter of this act series, we want this to be a joyous time in the life of Four Oaks. You know, here in this, in this passage, you know, it says in verse 34, the jailer, and he rejoiced along with his entire household. We want to rejoice along with the entire Four Oaks tribe as we see people being transformed by the gospel and making a public proclamation for it. Because we want to see, because let me say parents, we want to see you be intentional about this with your, with, with your students. Okay? We, have a, we have a process that we help take students through, and parents can take their students through. You can contact Pastor Rob, our student ministries pastor. He will help you with this. Parents, we think this is a, a really important piece, not, not, to, not to send your child through a process where they, they're not a believer and you're forcing them to, no, 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 but to cultivate biblical faith, to connect them with what's going, the gospel in your family life and in their life, and, not, and to have an urgency about it. We think that's powerful. We think it's powerful for people who, you know what, I've never been baptized, and I want to make a public proclamation of my faith. Because we would love to see One Life folks and testimonies in this coming season where God is doing a great work of grace. You know, six weeks to Easter, five weeks, it's hard to believe, it's early this year. People will be open to spiritual things and church in ways they are typically not during two or three times over the course of a calendar year. And we are entering one of those seasons. Four Oaks, be praying. Who in my network, family, child, parent, fam, whoever, one life, do I need to bring in to the gospel tribes in my life? And praying just like the Philippian jailer that he and all his household will be saved. As we come to the communion table this morning, let me express this last overriding personal concern. Do you today know Jesus Christ? Have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb? Have you died and been raised to walk in newness of life? Have there been forgiveness of sins? Have you been baptized? Any questions about any of those? Our pastors and elders will be down here up front. We'd love to talk to you about that. Let's commit our time at the table to the Lord. Lord.